the letters to the Thessalonians. The church of the Thessalonians was in a little city called, well, Thessalonica. Um, you guys know, remember where Philippi was? There's Troas, there's Philippi, there's Thessalonica. Thessalonica is roughly 100 miles west of Philippi, and it was the, one of the chief cities of Macedonia. It was originally called Therma. In ancient Greek, it was called Therma or Thermae, because it, like Philippi, had a whole bunch of hot springs near it. It was built on the side of a mountain. Here's a view of the mountain, from the mountain. Mount Cortiatus. I probably said that the wrong way. But that's the, the, the bay that it sits in. It's kind of this natural amphitheater, which sheltered it from a lot of the rough weather that came in, so it was a wonderful seaport. On the upper side, it had a citadel, it had a fortress. There's the fortress at Thessalonica. A.W. Tozer said of Thessalonica, it is admirably placed for purposes of communication and trade as it lies in the innermost bay of the winding, winding gulf and forms the natural point of transit for exports and imports, besides which it commands the resource of an immense plain which reaches in a vast arc as far as the foot of Olympus and receives the waters of three important rivers, the Axis, the Lydius, and the Heliacmen. So it's got a wonderful natural position of where it sits. It sits in a natural seaport. It's got two rivers that flow into it. This is an ideal spot to build a city. And it gained its prominence in 315 BC when the, the son-in-law of Philip of Macedon. Who is Philip of Macedon? Anybody remember? There you go. The father of Alexander the Great. He was the one who named Philippi after himself because he was so humble. His son-in-law, Cassander, relocated a whole bunch of people to this area. And then he renamed the city after his wife. And so it became the city of Thessalonica. Or today you'll see it, it's Salonica, Salonica, which is just the last part of it, S-A-L-O-N-I-C-A. And not only was it a port city like Philippi, but Thessalonica sat on the Ignatian Way. It sat on that highway that went from the east all the way out towards where Rome is. And if you go to Thessalonica today, you can actually see the gates. The Ignatian Way kind of split the city in two, and on each side were two large gates that marked the entrance to the city. And you can actually go and see those gates today. They don't make them like they used to, do they? And there's two of these gates on both sides of the ancient city. And because of this, because it's a seaport and it sits on the Ignatian Way, this was a city that was bustling and hustling with commerce and trade and visitors. People were constantly passing through. Not only did it have a great location, it, had, it also had a, a wonderful status within the Roman Empire. It was considered to be a free city. We've talked about free cities before. What's unique about a free city in the Roman Empire? They govern themselves. Right. So it was a Roman city. In 146 BC, the Romans come in and they conquer Macedon and they divide Macedon into four regions. Thessalonica ends up as the capital of the region that it's in. Later in 42, 42 BC, Thessalonica was made, they, they took all four regions and they combined them into one. And Thessalonica became a free city because, well, they picked the winner of the battle. There was a major battle there with Mark Antony and Octavian, remember that? They, they sided with the winner and the winner decided we're going to bless you and we're going to make you a free city. You guys can now govern yourself. And they were ruled by polytarchs or polytarchs. Polytarchs are found in Acts 17. It's an actual word that you'll find in your Bible. Acts 17, starting in verse 6. This is right after Paul begins his ministry there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He says, When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. 
shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they will act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The word there for city authorities is this word, politarchs. We don't have their job description. We don't know what they did. They assume, they believe there was roughly five to six of these rulers in the city. Um, but it seems one of their primary tasks was to ensure law and order. And they functioned kind of like a court slash law enforcement. But again, we don't have a job description. And so there you see those politarchs. They were established by the Roman government, and the Roman government allowed these rulers to control and to rule the city and make decisions for themselves. And they didn't have a Roman governor overseeing them. So who were the Thessalonians? I cannot speak this morning. Uh, The Thessalonians were, because they were in a free city, they were allowed to retain much of their Greek culture and language. They didn't have to change and become essentially Roman. The city itself had a large segment of Jews. The Jews came there because of the commerce. Unlike Philippi, Thessalonica had a synagogue. Uh, Acts 17 verse 1 says they were there. Uh, There was a synagogue of the Jews. The Jews there had enough influence, and there was enough of them, that they could build a synagogue. And then when Paul started preaching, they could cause problems for Paul later. Acts 17, verse 5, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. In attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And if you want to see how much influence they had and just how jealous they really were, their jealousy extended beyond the borders of Thessalonica. After Paul realizes this uproar is going to prevent his ministry, he leaves Thessalonica. He goes 45 miles away to a little town called Berea. Acts 17, verse 10, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So Paul gets to Berea, and he does the exact same thing. He goes to the synagogue, he begins to preach, and his ministry in Berea was effective. Acts 17, verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Things were going great in Berea. Well, for a little while. Until news makes it back to the Jews in Thessalonica, that Paul is in the synagogue in Berea. And the Jews are like, no, 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 that's not going to work for us. And so they pack up and they move to Berea and follow Paul to Berea, Acts 17, verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Could not stand Paul preaching, and they followed him. Apparently, they had enough connections, not only there in Thessalonica, but they had enough connections in Berea that word could get back to them and inform them of what Paul is doing. It's like they had their own little spy network on Paul. So what do we know about the church? What do we know about the church there in Thessalonica? Well, we know the church in Thessalonica was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. We covered the first part of his second missionary journey when we discussed Philippi, but I just want to do a quick review so you know where we're at. Acts 15, Barnabas comes up with this plan. We've already done one missionary journey. Let's do a second one. Let's go back to all the churches and strengthen them. Paul had a little falling out with somebody else. Who was his falling out with? He had a dispute with somebody? Mark. Mark. Why did Paul have a dispute with Mark? A little Bible quiz. I think Mark, Mark's ready to go back. He abandoned them. He had abandoned them on the first missionary journey. And so Paul says, I don't want to take this guy. So Barnabas takes Mark. Paul takes Silas. And they go and they start their journey. And they go through... Acts 16, they go through Derby and Lystra. Acts 16, 6, they pass through Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Paul's idea was, I'm going to go back to these churches and preach. Holy Spirit says, nope, keep on going. So Paul keeps going. Acts 16, verse 7, and they came to Mysia, and they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. 
Paul again says, I want to preach. The Holy Spirit says no. So they get to Troas, which is the port city. There he has the Macedonian vision, which tells him, go to Macedon. Acts 16, verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So they take the hint, they get on a boat, and they go to Macedon. Acts 16, verse 14, you have the story of Lydia. What happened with Lydia? Who is Lydia? Let's say it that way. Yes, seller of purple fabrics. What's unique about her? Her conversion. She was the first convert of Europe. She invited Paul to do ministry in her home. So she she got converted, and immediately she's like, I want to serve. Let me serve. Acts 16, verse 17, the story of a demon-possessed girl being delivered and saved. Acts 16, verses 20 and fo- 22 and following. Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi. And there's something I want you to know in this story. Look at uh, Acts 16, verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. This was a normal form of punishment. It was like the extreme form of corporal punishment. It means exactly what it says, to be beaten with a stick. And by the time Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians on his third missionary journey, he had received this punishment three times, including this one. And here, in Philippi, they beat him. And they beat him severely. Acts 16.23, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison. This was a severe beating. And Paul, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, he mentions this beating and the treatment he received in Philippi. 1 Thessalonians 2.2, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul is beaten in Philippi. He's imprisoned. And while in prison, he converts the jailer. And then he's released. Acts 16, verse 40, They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and they departed. He received some really harsh treatment, spent the night in the jail, and then decides, I need to leave Philippi, and he goes to Thessalonica. One of the reasons he ends up in Thessalonica is because of the harsh treatment in Philippi and because of the opposition of the Jews. So he leaves Philippi, he travels 100 miles to Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And this is where there's some controversy. If you read through the commentaries, the big question is, how long did Paul stay in Thessalonica? Well, yes, especially when you start talking about authorship of 1 Thessalonians. Because they say that the first letter to the Thessalonians and Acts contradict each other. Therefore, Paul didn't write Thessalonians. So he says here in Acts 17, Luke says he was there for three Sabbaths, which is how long? Roughly three weeks, right? Could be a little more, could be a little less. And while he was there, he received support from the Philippians. In fact, Philippians 4.16 says, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So while he's in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, he receives at least two gifts from the Philippians. But while he's there, he also refuses to take money from the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2, I'm going to read five verses here, but I I want you to hear what he tells them. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, 
how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. Why do I read that? I read that because Paul says, while he was in Thessalonica, he worked night and day with his own hands to provide for his needs. Some people say, well, if you're only in Thessalonica for three weeks and you receive two gifts from Philippi, why do you need to work with your hands night and day? There's a couple of possibilities. The Thessalonians sent two gifts, rapid fire succession, and those two gifts just weren't enough to sustain his needs, and so he worked for the remaining time to make sure he had what he needed. The second view says that Luke's account only records the time Paul spent preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. That the three weeks he, that Luke focuses on are just the three weeks that Paul spent focusing on the Jews. That he would have stayed there longer. That he stayed there for two months to six months. And if you read MacArthur's commentary, that's the view he takes. That he must have stayed there longer. Acts gives no indication that he remained longer. If you look in Acts 17, it suggests that there was only three weeks, and that three-week period ended because of the opposition of the Jews. Acts 17, verse 4, some Jews were persuaded along with many Gentiles. Acts 17, verse 5, the Jews become jealous and form a mob. Acts 17, 6 through 9, they attack Jason, and they take him to the city authorities, and then they release him. Acts 17, verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. He arrives, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he spends three Sabbaths there, the Jews cause an uprising, he leaves immediately. If you read Acts, it doesn't seem like Paul stayed there any time longer than what he spent in the synagogues. The problem, though, is that the epistle, 1 Thessalonians, seems to indicate that Paul did spend more time there. 1 Thessalonians 2, would someone like to read? 1 Thessalonians 2.9. And I need someone else to go to 2 Thessalonians 3.8. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so it is not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Okay. So there he says, I've been working night and day, so I'm not a burden on you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. If Philippi sent two gifts, why does he need to work so much? And the idea that seems to be expressed in, the, in Philippians is that the Philippians provided everything he needed. This would make sense if Paul stayed in Thessalonica a little bit longer. If he had spent two to six months in Thessalonica. And that Luke is only recording what he wants to focus on. It's not that Luke and Paul contradict each other. One of my professors in seminary used to say this all the time. It's emphasis, not exclusion. It's like if I were to leave this class and someone say, hey, how did class go? And I say, well, it was wonderful. Percy and I had a great time. I'm not saying no one else attended the class. I'm just talking about Percy and I really enjoyed the class, right? And so that's what Luke does. Luke focuses primarily on what Paul did with the Jews and Paul says, look, I had a ministry outside of that because if you read in Acts 17, he even says many Gentiles were converted. Now, some will say, well, those are Jewish proselytes who were in the synagogue. So I, I would say that the idea that he was there longer probably fits and works. And it's not a good reason to reject Paul's authorship. We'll talk about authorship in a minute. All right, so what was the membership of the church? Well, from what we've seen in Acts, it included both Jews and Gentiles. But if you look at 1 Thessalonians, it seems like the emphasis of 1 Thessalonians is on the Gentile believers, that his primary focus is on the Gentiles. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. Would somebody, someone be willing to read that? And then someone else to read 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. 1, 9. Who's got that? Go ahead. But they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Would Paul say that about Jews? The former Pharisee would not agree that he worshipped idols. He would agree he got a lot wrong, but he would not say that he worshipped idols. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14-16. 14, for you, <coughs> brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. <coughs> for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, that wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Notice he refers to the Jews as them, not you. And he's referring to the Gentiles. He's talking to Gentile believers. Another reason that Paul they believe that Paul was there longer is that 1 Thessalonians... This is the wrong spot in my notes, but 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 12 and 13, it appears that the church there was pretty well established by the time Paul left. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. The membership of the church there obviously they had some mature believers people that Paul could say you have leaders there that you can trust 1st Thessalonians 5 verse 12 and by the time Paul leaves that church the church is flourishing and news about them was spreading rapidly 1st Thessalonians 1 verse 7 so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This is a church full of Gentiles, and it is a flourishing church. And news about this church is going throughout the entire region, and Paul is hearing back from other people about the Thessalonians and their faith. Okay, this is the obvious question. Who wrote 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. This should clear it up. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God. Pretty clear, right? Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And there's no evidence outside of 1 Thessalonians or external evidence that would suggest anything other than Paul. In fact, the early church never doubted 1 Thessalonians as being written by Paul. And there are numerous external witnesses. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, uh, the external testimony in favor of Pauline authorship is in no way deficient. Marcion included the letter in his canon. Who's Marcion? Do you guys remember? Wanted to make his own Bible. Put out the stuff he Marcion says this was Paul. Even the heretics know. And the Miratorian Fragment mentions it as one of Paul's writings. Miratorian Fragment. Anybody know the Miratorian Canon? The Miratorian Canon is one of the earliest witnesses we have of the New Testament. It dates to around 170, and it lists all of the Old Testament, not including the Apocrypha, I would remind you. And it includes most of the New Testament, and it includes 1 Thessalonians in the section of Paul's epistles. The Miratorian Fragment mentions him. It is contained in the Old Latin and Syriac versions, and from, from the time of Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Tertullian, it is regularly quoted by name. Early church fathers said it is Paul. So how do the liberals, or those who dispute Paul's authorship, deal with verse 1? Yeah, they essentially say that's not true. That Paul didn't write it. Well, yeah, there's a group of literature, there's a group of literature called the pseudepigrapha. The pseudepigrapha are books that were written under a pseudoname. You didn't have normal advertising like we have today. 
So if I wanted my book to really sell big, you wouldn't put it under my name because nobody knows who I am. But if I write my book and I stamp John MacArthur's name on it, now there's interest. Now people want to read it. And so you have that thing like the Gospel of Thomas written 200 years after Thomas died. The guy who wrote it did it because, well, everybody knows the Apostle Thomas. And so if I write the book and put his name on it, then I can have more publicity. And so they would kind of lump, without saying it, they would lump 1 Thessalonians and primarily 2 Thessalonians into that category. The reason they do that, we don't have time to go through all the details. If you have Edmund Hebert's introduction, he goes through it. The reason they do that is because they say the eschatology of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is different. Um, MacArthur has a very simple explanation in the opening part of his commentary. Edmund Hebert, whose introduction is in the bookstore, has a very good explanation on that. It's, it's the result of higher criticism. You come to the text with a presupposition, and then you enforce that presupposition onto the text. And when the text doesn't meet what you want it, then you say the text must be wrong. What about 2 Thessalonians? Who wrote that? This is actually the bigger controversy. Who wrote 2 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. Anybody want to read that? Written by 2 Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. I don't know that you can get any more clear. You have to assume the guy's lying. And if you assume he's lying, why would you want to read his book? Edmund Heber, I didn't put this on the slide. The genuineness of 2 Thessalonians was never questioned until the radical German criticism of the past century brought it under attack. The past, the past century would be the 1800s. 19th century liberal criticism. Higher criticism. And when you... If you have like nothing better to do with your life, go read up on what these guys do. It is absolutely terrible. Yes. Doctor Farnell has a book. I think it's called The Jesus Crisis. Yeah, it's The Jesus Crisis. But higher criticism is just wow. Okay. Yeah, but a lot of them embrace it as being genuine. The early church referred to 2 Thessalonians constantly. Polycarp cited it. Justin the Martyr alluded to it. Irenaeus named it by name. It is also found in the Miratorian Canon. It's found in the Syriac. It's found in the Vulgate. The Vulgate is a Latin translation. And it's also found in the Old Latin translations. It's even found in Marcion's Canon. Even the heretic gets it. Okay, so when did he write Thessalonians? When did he write 1 Thessalonians? Even that is up for debate. I don't think there should be a debate, so I'm not going to go into it in great I'm not going to go into it today. 1 Thessalonians came first. Just okay. Well, we do have a time marker on when he wrote. Acts 18 verse 12, but while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. You'll remember that Paul left Thessalonica. He goes south into Athens, and then he goes to what city? Who's the Bible scholar here? Where does he go next? You're close. Corinth. Corinth. He goes to Corinth, and he spends a year and a half in Corinth. And in Corinth... There's a guy named Gallio who is the proconsul, and he is dragged before Gallio, right? Well, we know when Gallio was reigning. He was reigning between 51 and 52 AD. So the events there were around 52, 51, 52 AD. And Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. We know that because of Acts 18, verse 11. This would put Paul in Corinth at the time of Gallio. Now, 
depending on what commentary you read, even conservative commentaries, I think if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, he'll put this somewhere between 49 and 50, or they'll put Galatians between 49 and 50, but most conservative commentaries put Thessalonians between 50 and 52. And I'm not going to be dogmatic because, honestly, I don't know that I could narrow down which one is more correct than the other. But here's my basic logic. I think 50 AD is a little bit too early. Uh, even if you say for Galatians. Because remember, Paul leaves the Jerusalem Council. If you assume, if you take Galatians 2, as I do, that it's talking about the Jerusalem Council. He leaves the council, he goes north to Syria, he's in Antioch, and then he travels through Phrygia and all those churches up there. He goes through the Galatian regions to Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, and he does that in less than a year. He writes Galatians from Corinth too. That's way too fast. Furthermore, he writes from Corinth during Galio's term. Well, Galio wasn't in office in 50. So 50, I think, is way too early. It's also unlikely he wrote 1 Thessalonians at the start of his ministry there in Corinth. Why? Because he had just left Thessalonica and he was already hearing about the faith of the Thessalonians and how they were so faithful and that takes time for that kind of word to travel. So I think it's best to place 1 Thessalonians sometime in 52 AD. That would give it enough time for news of the Thessalonians to travel. It would also give him enough time to make it from Jerusalem all the way out to Corinth after the Jerusalem Council. Does that make sense? So if you're going to date these books, I think those three books, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians, were all in the same year. William Hendrickson. I can see no reason, therefore, to deny that the epistle, speaking of First and Second Thessalonians, uh, sorry, deny that the epistle to the Galatians was followed soon afterward by First Thessalonians, which in quick succession was followed by Second Thessalonians, all three having been written from Corinth about the year A.D. 52. Now, if you do not take for, uh, Galatians 2 to be the Jerusalem Council, you might be able to push that date earlier, 49 to 50. Okay might be possible, but I don't think you're a heretic if you take it as earlier than that, okay? The dates that put it, you know, 70, 80, completely wrong. Paul's dead by then. He couldn't have written it. Okay, so why did Paul write these letters? What was the occasion for writing the letter? Why did, what, what caused him to write it? Well, Paul had to leave Thessalonica earlier than he wanted. Why did he have to leave? Because the Jews were out to kill him. Time to leave. And the brethren there wanted him to leave. And so Paul feels almost forced, like, I have to get out of here. And so he leaves Thessalonica, but he's got this church going. What do you think he was thinking when he gets to Athens? I had to leave in the middle of the night. I had to rush out. Those people are now alone. I got a church full of people, and they're now alone. And Paul's concern for the Thessalonians starts to grow. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. I wanted to get back to you. I wanted to turn around and go back. But I couldn't. So he gets down to Athens... And he sends Timothy back to check on the church in Thessalonica. And he sends Silas, he, it says he sends Silas to Macedonia, that's probably to Philippi, but Paul remains in Athens. We know that 1 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So he sends Timothy back to the church at, the Thess at Thessalonica to minister to them. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. 
He's worried that someone has gotten into that church and has started drawing the believers away from Christ and from the gospel. So Timothy goes to Thessalonica, and he comes back to Athens, and he meets with Paul, and he tells Paul how the Thessalonians are doing. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we might, as we night and day Keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. What's the report that he receives back from Thessalonica? Things are going pretty good, but there seem to be some problems. There seem to be some concerns that Paul has. Paul realizes that the persecution that started while he was there likely didn't stop when he left. And so Paul starts to defend himself from some of the attacks that are coming in Thessalonica. We're not told what they are, but he does give us some indications. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, he says, I did not teach error, nor did I deceive you. That wasn't my goal, that's not what I did. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 and 5, I didn't come to flatter you to try to get money from you, to try to, to, out of greed. There were obviously some false teachers there who were saying that Paul's in it for the money, even though Paul refused their money. It's kind of hard to figure out how they made that argument. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, he was not seeking the approval of men. He wasn't there to please people. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8, he talks about how gentle he was. And so apparently people were saying, you're harsh, you're brutal, you're mean, you're not a very nice guy. He also warned them not to slip back into their old habits of their sinful past. Thessalonica was like any town with a lot of visitors. It's like Vegas, or, you know, what happens in Vegas stays on YouTube. <laughs> Only there was no YouTube there. It had rampant sexual sin. Rampant immorality. It was a normal city for it was a normal thing for that time. First uh, Thessalonians four, verse two. But you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. These are fairly new believers, even though the church is flourishing. I think MacArthur said he Paul realized the pool of old habits. And how will they pull you back? And he reminds them, don't turn back to that old way of life. And that's his purpose in writing 1 Thessalonians. It's on your handout. Paul exhorted the Thessalonian believers to grow. I thought I fixed that. Grow in holiness so that they might be blameless when Christ returns, not grown in holiness. He wants them to be Holy. He wants their profession of faith to be demonstrated in their holy lives. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Paul sets himself as the example and says, Look how I behaved when I was with you. That's how you should behave. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He even prayed that they would be holy. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That phrase there, abstain from every form of evil, is a really helpful little phrase. Literally, it says, abstain from every appearance of evil. Don't even give someone the impression that what you're doing is sinful. That's the idea of being above reproach. 
avoid anything that even looks like it's sin. So he wanted to encourage these new believers to live holy, devout lives that were blameless, that the unbeliever could not point to and say, you're sinning. That's 1 Thessalonians. What's the purpose of 2 Thessalonians? It is also on your handout on the back. Paul called the Thessalonian believers to steadfastness and Christian growth in light of the return of Christ. And in both of these epistles, the return of Christ looms really large. There's an expectation that Jesus is coming back. 1 Thessalonians 2, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Would someone read that, 13 and 14? 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14? Okay. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation and sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, thank you. Towards the end of the book in 3.13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. He hasn't returned yet, but he's going to. And this was the, the impetus. This was the reason they should live holy lives. Christ is coming back. And if you look through First and Second Thessalonians, you'll see it over and over and over again. First uh, Thessalonians 2.19, and by the way, this is actually on your handout under the themes. First Thessalonians 2.19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? You, you're, you're going to be with Christ. Isn't that what we're so proud of? Isn't that what gives us joy? 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father, when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Be blameless and holy in this life, so that way when Christ returns, you will be with him. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. Everything is founded on this idea. Christ is coming back. Now live differently. And apparently there's some believers who thought that maybe we've missed it. Maybe Jesus has come back. He's gathered the saints and we've been left behind. Thank you for those of you who got that joke. Second Thessalonians 2 8, that then, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with his breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Lawless one? Yes. Well, I was just, uh, just for clarification, so the purpose when he's talking about the second coming, it's more as a foundation for continuing in the faith, doing good things, as opposed to writing some wrong interpretations and misunderstandings that there's been some false teachers who have come in and said things and Paul saying no 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 it's this right it's more about it's more the former rather than the latter right the overall purpose of the book is be holy yeah. live in a Christ-like way and while he's doing that he's correcting some errors along the way and they they had some some wrong thinking and you can see that one of the ways he helps them understand why they should live holy is because he puts judgment in front of them. And he talks about the reality of judgment. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. We've been preaching the gospel. The Jews have been trying to stop us from preaching the gospel to the the Gentiles, and therefore, because we can't give them the gospel, the wrath of God is filling up for them. That reminds me of Romans 2, where he says, storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And the wrath of God will culminate in this eschatological period called the day of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1, he describes, or he mentions this, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us 
as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You don't want to be a part of that group. Well, Paul sends his first letter, and apparently his first letter gets to them, and he quickly gets word back that there's some additional concerns in Thessalonica. Apparently, they had been told that the day of the Lord was already here. You're already facing the day of the Lord. This is his wrath. In 2 Thessalonians, he writes to them and says, look, it's not here. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.2 kind of makes this idea that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is nothing compared to the day of the Lord. Uh, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is the day of Jacob's trouble. Uh, in book of Revelation, we would call it the, the period of the tribulation. Matthew 24, it's described as the worst, the great tribulation as has never been seen on the earth. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, Now as to the times and to epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. What do you notice about that? Them. They and them. When the day of the Lord comes and the wrath is poured out, you aren't there. This is for them, for the unbeliever, for the wicked. He says destruction will come. He doesn't say destruction will come upon you. They will not escape and destruction will come upon them. Revelation 6, verse 15 describes the, the beginning part of this. He says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So everyone in the day of the Lord, who's on the earth, is experiencing the wrath of God. Where are believers? People say, well, the believers are right there. They're, they're, they're going through the wrath of God like everybody else. And my problem with that is when you look at Revelation 6, verse 15, or uh, verse 16 and 17, the people there cry out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Where do believers hide from Christ? We're in Christ. We're in Christ. <laughs> Why would believers endure the wrath of Christ when he endured the wrath of God for us? And that's kind of his point here. Believers are not marked by wickedness. They're not marked by sinful lifestyles. They're marked by holiness. We've been saved from sin. We've been liberated from sin. And therefore, we've been liberated from the consequences of sin, including the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Salvation includes not only rescue from the uh, the effect of sin now, but it also rescues us from the wrath of God that is to come. Jesus will return and gather his bride. I want to go to 1 Thessalonians 4 real quick here. This is a known passage. You guys know this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Would somebody, someone be willing to read 13 through 18? The famous rapture passage. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep 
so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, people say, well, look, there is no rapture. Um, you see that little phrase? Verse 17, will be caught up together. The word caught up is the Greek word harpazo. It means to literally snatch, to pull away. There's no question, the rapture. No question. Everyone knows it's the rapture. But here's what I want to point out to you. Notice here there's no mention of judgment. There's no mention of wrath. And in fact, he ends that passage, therefore, comfort one another with these words. If I'm telling you that you're going to experience the wrath of God, is that comfort to you? Certainly not. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he describes the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, he goes straight into the day of the Lord, the day of Jacob's trouble. The tribulational period. And by the way, we don't have time to go and look at it. When you go through the Old Testament and you look at the period of the day of Jacob's trouble, there's a consistent pattern. Rescue for the godly, judgment on the ungodly. Rescue for the godly, judgment on the consistent pattern all the way through. All right? I will note, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 is not referring to the second coming described in Revelation 19. If you just want to have some fun this afternoon, read Revelation 19, 11-16, and read 1 Thessalonians and compare the two. They are not describing the same event. They're two separate events. I would take that as the same event. Uh, another one would be John 14, the first few verses. I will come and receive you so that where I am, you may also be. Revelation 19, it describes Jesus not bringing people up with him. It describes him coming down to the earth. And the saints are behind him, following him. So, all right, any other questions, comments? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for First uh, and Second Thessalonians. We do ask that you would help us to remember the call to holiness, that we would live with an expectation that Christ is returning soon, that he could return at any moment, and that we need to be ready for his return. That those who have this hope purify themselves, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ and always uh, seek to be pleasing to him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.